Welcome to Mavericks. I'm Joey Garcia, and in this episode, we'll be speaking to a blockchain trailblazer. He's one of the founders of IOV Labs, the RSK smart contract platform, better known as Rootstock. At the end of 2013, I decided I wanted to devote myself to see how we could put Bitcoin to the service of society and create this inclusive financial system. He's a great friend and a true maverick. It's Diego Gutierrez Zaldivar. This is Mavericks, brought to you by Zappa Bank. So Diego, awesome to have you here. First of our Mavericks uh, series. And I know enough about you, like super interesting and long history, but for me, one of the super interesting things is where it all started. So back in the day, I've heard you talk before about your mom, you were nine years old, slums of Buenos Aires. You know, what, what did you see? What did you think? How did she sort of influence what was happening? How did the whole journey start? Yeah, it started when I was very young. My mother was a social activist. Uh, she was working in the slums of Buenos Aires, doing many things. Indeed, uh, also she she helped found a political party, uh, the first Green Party in Argentina. So, so I was like, of course, I was a child, and then then she was taking me with her. Uh, so I was exposed, if you want, to to the inequalities of society very young. So, so that was. If you want, that is embedded in me. It's like it's, it's one of my major drivers in life is uh, to think how how we can uh, sort out the inequalities. No? And, and she there, she, um, I mean, during that period, she will have had that influence. I mean, take that through to today. I read your Twitter name mm-hmm. uh, and I see equalitatum honoris. Honoris, equali- yes. So in how in do you honor get that? To, to equality, no? What what sort of influence did she have on that? Well, I think it's interesting because she was not uh, like feeding me with ideological concepts. She was just uh, taking me with her to the, the work she she was doing, and uh, by that exposure is that I build up my own thinking around that. No, it's like, uh, and and you know, one of the things I saw that you know, was uh, the, the biggest unfairness or injustice uh, I saw was uh, seeing people, very talented people, extremely hardworking people, uh, kind people with big hearts, not being able to get out of poverty and not being able to get out uh, of like a pretty difficult, tough life just because they were born in the wrong setting. No, it's like not, not because of their... And that is kind of, for me, the, the worst injustice, you know, you can, you can face in society. It's like a, somebody that, yeah, puts everything of, of themselves uh, and, and cannot thrive just because, yeah. So, and and you, you, you see that, you experience <laughs> your mother's showing you things, you're, you're really sort of taking your role in. What do you do? How, how do you react to that? How did you react to that? What was the next well, step? Well, that, in, a, in a way that shaped my purpose in life, I'm. Oh, everybody says, yeah, you you have to look for your purpose in life, but it's not that easy. It's like uh, usually, you know, the the way to find your purpose in life is by discarding things. It's like you do trial and error of a lot of things, and through life, if you're lucky enough, you will find it. In my case, I was so lucky because I found my purpose in life as young as I would say, as twelve. It's like I, I knew I wanted to to reshape society in a very way since I was very, very young. And then I did a lot of experiments. Of course, my, my first steps were 
actually doing the same that my mother was doing, doing social activism. I was part of that, the creation of the Green Party in, ni- in 1989. So it was like before Green was cool. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and, and also with a very humanistic approach is for me, like ecology was to the service of society, not like uh, an end, a means, uh, an end in itself, no, or a goal in itself. Um, and I did a lot of experiments. And uh, indeed, that also gave me a lot of learnings about how power structure works and how power, which many, many years later, maybe I would say, yeah, 30 years later, uh, were the reason why I understood the deeper consequences of Bitcoin when I got in touch with it. It's like, a, because I was looking for something different to a new way of uh, structured societies that was more fair and I was uh, living uh, the problems of power concentration since I was very young. No, Because one thing that happened to me is that in the social uh, movement I was part of, people was like very, very kind, very well intended with great values. But I still, I saw corruption in, in a different form. It was not corruption in the form of like people willing to get more money or... but. It was more in the form of being people willing to have more prestige. And as they were gathering, like we were structured in a, a hierarchical st- structure. So as people was like coordinating bigger and bigger uh, human groups, I saw how, you know, power was eating up in them. Like mm. then they were losing themselves into, into the power struggle. Um, and that was one, the reason why at my early 20s, I decided to, to stop doing social activism within those structures and started chasing technology as a way of transforming society. No, in and that, and that's, that's what I was going to take you back to because you said that you decided on what that was at the age of 12, and that's a young age, to def, you know, define and discover a purpose of life. Um, and then you mentioned the Bitcoin protocol so somewhere down the mm-hmm. line. In between, the tech sort of changed. How did you get from the age of 12, thinking and defining a purpose of life, <laughs> to something way down the line from a tech perspective, what was your f- sort of first step in the, well, in the world? It's fun because my, my, my father's wife, she was a doctor, but she lived in Houston for a while. Houston was like very, in the 70s, was a highly technological city. It was thought as a, the city of the future. And she got in touch with computing back in the day. Like, uh, so, so she told me, I think this is the future. You, you need to learn, I was 11. You need to learn programming. Why don't we take a programming class or course? Uh, and and we did it. And of course, in the first semester, she was a <laughs> she had nothing to do with that. So so she dropped, and and I finished. And I, I remember because I my 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 final exam was uh, doing an accounting program. But at eleven, I didn't understood accounting. So for me, I was following rules, and then. Of course, I, I did the program, I, I finished the exam, and that was my first connection with technology, um, that programming class or, or course. And, and, you, and you were already thinking about <coughs> technology and transforming society when you were younger or you were I, learning I and discovering have, along the way? Uh, yeah, when I started, back at 11, I didn't have this, yeah. this concept. I was helping my friends from primary school in other ways, like with their problems. It was more like a closer environment. It, that thinking on the social transformation developed later. 
you know, I, I was doing my interactions with the first BBS, my first connections with the people around the globe. There was a BBS in France called Giga that has six modems. So you can talk to six people at the same time. And we were connecting with people from Israel, Australia. And that was like the first like globally connected experience I had. And at the same time, uh, the people from the, f- that was doing the CD of the 50th anniversary for Clarín uh, was introduced to me uh, through a very good friend, a photographer, because I was doing digital photography. And they shared with me a lot of, you know, a lot of the things that trigger my, my imagination about how technology could impact the world. No, because they shared me the Wire magazine uh, that was 1994. <clears throat> they shared me the digital divide from Negroponte, from the Media Lab. Um, so it was connecting my, I would say, my, my main drivers in life. No, it was connecting the social elements. The digital divide is about that. No, it's about how society will be shaped if half of the population or more than half of the population doesn't have access directly to, to digital tools. No, so. Now it's interesting because in 2020, more or less, we reached the mark where half of the unbanked, for example, or, or the excluded in our society, have digital access. So, so in a way, we are finding our way into create this, this inclusiveness or this way of bringing these tools and integrating into society, everybody. But is that is that what you were thinking of at the time, or when you got it? I mean, was the internet then, or as it was developing, all these systems? Was it about having fun or were you thinking about specific sort of social good? Well, for, for me, it was the process of, of discovery, you know? It's like, well, they told me in 1994, you know, if, if Clarine creates uh, the, the media lab into the newspaper, I want, we want to, to you to be part. And I did in 1995, I joined, I was the third member of the media lab. And, and indeed, I was the first webmaster. We, we launched the website of Clarín in, in 1996. Um, so, so I was like doing things and trying, but that feeling that this tool could be potentially a, a driver for social positive social transformation was in the back of my head. There were fun things like a Wire Magazine in 1994, the, the special uh, edition on the, the Burning Man. So, so <laughs> since ever I was thinking on that crazy party that happens on the. So there was a mixture of like of excitement about yeah, this yeah. new culture, like. Uh, but and then, and then Clarín specifically. I mean, if you talk about a website uh, or an Argentinian newspaper online, I suppose suddenly you have this concept of access to data, right? Access to information from Argentinians that were Absolutely. all over the place. Because Clarín also was a sponsor of Media Lab from the MIT. So we were having people from the Media Lab come to Buenos Aires and share with us uh, their vision. So, so we were discussing the man-machine interactions, which is the core focus of the Media Lab. So we were discussing how, you know, information was going to be absorbed by humans in this new context. So a lot of our work in the newspaper was not only translating the physical newspaper into a new medium, but was a lot about experimenting with new ways of structuring information. So we were working a lot about contextual information, hypertext, uh, you know, and I did some very pretty experiments. I, I, I created a remote control, for example, where you could like, have an experience like a journey through multiple websites with a contextual remote control on top of it. So many things that 
today are easy technically to do, but conceptually we were experimenting. <laughs> and that's why when Clarín came out was in the in the leading leading edge of of websites back then. It's like I, I created an interface so people could chat from the web. Uh, because back then you need a special software called the an IRC client called Mirk. Uh, so it was not easy for people. So we created an interface on the web so people could chat and created the first communities. And <clears throat> there were two realizations there. No, it's like the moment the day we we released the website, on the following day we were getting emails from Argentinians all over the world. Uh, thanking us for having the opportunity to know what was going on in their motherland, like in real time. Because at that time, getting to know what was happening in, in Argentina took like 24 to 48 hours. And that, like, and that, that, and that sorry to deal, but that was also part of an evolution, <coughs> right? So when the internet came around or whatever it was, PCs, et cetera, and everyone was thinking about, you know, potentially sending an email, actually it was initially used only by certain sort of professors. In the academia, show. yeah. Exactly. And until yeah. then, it so, was only yeah. like restricted to academia. Exactly. And that, that was so it. then it gets to a stage of Clarín <laughs> and it's online and you have guys from Argentina and different parts mm -hmm. of the world writing in. I mean, amazing. And then how the big step. So from an internet of data and the sharing of information, you weren't, <clears throat> probably weren't thinking about you know, access to financial services around the world or anything like that. But how do you get to the concept of an internet of value? Uh, how do you take the next step? What 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 triggered that? Well, yeah, I think it's like because I saw the the innovation cycle of the I would say of the digital world from mm -hmm. from the beginning I would say to till now <laughs> almost to the beginning from the home computer till till now uh, and I I have lived through the innovation cycle of the Internet of Information what I call the Internet of Information which is the dot com era and yeah. When when I got in touch with with Bitcoin, to be honest, at the beginning I didn't get it. It's like a, for me it was a fun experiment in 2011 when I when I got How in touch. How did you get into it? It was a friend of mine. He's a hacker. I, I used to hire to to do some Linux uh, projects back in the day in the in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. Uh, he was programming protocols for for uh, voice over IP, and and he told me Ito. You need to check this. This is uh, very interesting. I saw it, but there was there were no much use. It was like very fringe use cases for Bitcoin, like totalitarian countries where people were were using that to get you know to to offer their services, but very limited. <clears throat> and also, I was kind of at odds with money back in the day. Not at odds, but I didn't find the connection, the true connection between money and the human dimension, no? which that changed in the same year. In 2011, I got in touch with an ethical banker, uh, Joan Melé from Trios Bank. And uh, he has a, a talk called Conscious and Money, where he connected the human uh, yeah, factor to, to money. He, so he made me understand that money was a tool, a very powerful tool, in a way to accumulate and handle human uh, yeah, energy. <laughs> it's like, that's how we manage. It's like, now I have other thinking, like more evolved thinking, but it's, uh, money is a more objective way of uh, storing human, uh, human energy and, and effort, no? Whether that effort comes from uh, 
physical work, mental work, creativity, but it's a way to, to accumulate and manage uh, human. And when I, that, then I did that connection. And in 2012, a very good uh, friend of mine, Wences Casares, in the early 2012, he told me, oh, Diego, you have to check this. And I said, yeah, Wences, I, I already saw that. It's like, I mean, it's, it's great, but, but I don't think, no, 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 Diego, Wences doesn't take no for an answer, no? So, so he, he came to, to like, okay, I say, okay, let's do this because it's the only way I, I will get rid of you <laughs> if I doing what you want me to do. So I opened an account <clears throat> at blockchain.info uh, and, and then, you know, he sent me, he was in the Silicon Valley, he sent to Buenos Aires where I was uh, 5,000 Bitcoins, that was like 50K uh, USD back in the day. And I sent that money back to him and the whole process was took an hour. So, so when I saw that, I saw, that's when I came to a second realization. I said, okay, this is how a truly open and neutral financial system should work. Because this was a purely peer-to-peer -peer interaction. It's like we didn't have to ask permission to anybody. There were facilitators, not like the website, but, but basically it was him sending me uh, money. I, I, I was sending that money back, almost all of it. That was another like uh, aha moment. It's like he told me keep one Bitcoin, but at the end I had 0 0.9995. So then I realized I was paying for the fees of the transaction, with, which is another interesting concept in Bitcoin. It's like um, the cost of the transaction is always there, but it's obfuscated in the traditional financial system. And mm. And, and, and in this system, it was completely transparent. So, so firstly, <laughs> can you send me 5,000 Bitcoin? Yeah. Let's just do a test and stuff. And but you will give them back? Yeah, well, yeah. Of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> secondly, like you talk about, like, it's super interesting. You know, you've been through, like, say, an internet journey. You get to this sort of concept. You're talking about things. You're seeing a blockchain-based transaction. Um, but what's the trigger to say, oh, my goodness, I want to devote my life to this? What, what, what's what's that well, moment? The thing is, like after that talk, uh, that experience with Wences, I was like almost 15 days non-sleeping, like really or barely sleeping, like reading about Bitcoin, mostly on the monetary aspects of it, because I I, I come from a technical and, and social background, so the financial elements were the more foreign to me. So I started reading about the you know the history of money, uh, you know of course shelling out article from Nick Savo, um, how the, well, Bretton Goods, how, how the financial structure of the world was working. And at the end, uh, it was, I find an article from Eric Borges that is called something like a libertarian view on, on Bitcoin or something like that. Um, and I don't know why, because I reread the article recently and I, it's not exactly there, but that was the moment I, I find out that Bitcoin was a tool for more than the financial elements. For me, it was a realization that Bitcoin was the beginning of a new innovation or disruption that could change how we manage trust between people. And that was the answer I was looking for since, since the late 90s when I stopped doing social activism within an organization. So that was let, the let moment. Me, let, let me interrupt. Let me ask you one, one question. Um, you use the word trust. Mm -hmm. So your your trust is sort of moving from, you know, whatever, a defined intermediary or whoever that might be to effectively a system or yes. a software. So it's, it's a middleman to middleware. 
uh, that's the, the yes. journey that most people go on. How do you build trust or how do you expect people to build trust in you know, that, software? That, that's a great point because I think it's actually you're completely right. I think the, the main value of Bitcoin or the main disruption of Bitcoin is like two things. It's one, creating a means for digital scarcity. Before Bitcoin, there were no yep. way to have digital scarcity. And when you are managing value in all of its forms, the scarcity is, is a must. It's like you cannot have a scarcity without, uh, sorry, you cannot have value without scarcity. It's like, so, so that's the, the big change that Bitcoin brought to, to the table. No, it's like the big innovation that was not possible. With, I mean, the internet of information changed a lot of dimensions of society, but the one thing that could not change is how we manage value or how we exchange it, how we store it. Um, and the other thing is what you're mentioning is trust creation. And I don't think it's like this is replacing intermediaries because trust on a human level is a social construct. No, it's like in the village, it was very clear. You had your reputation, you were mm -hmm. living on the village. It's like, you know, once you, you kill your reputation, that, that's it. It's like you are, um, that's why, you know, people was vanquished from the cities. I mean, like losing your uh, your belonging to a community was a sentence to death. No? That, that, that's in, in the Greek times, for example. So, so, but the thing is, what we are doing is making trust uh, creation more efficient. No, it's like uh, what, what we are doing. So, so that delega that delegation or transfer of trust still will happen. It's like you will have institutions which are ways of accumulating trust, if you want over time and, uh, uh, you know, you will have institutions still transferring trust into individuals. You will have trust from individuals to individuals, but you, what you have is a, me a medium where that trust can be recorded in a reliable way. So we can do new things. So now what we are creating is a new way of managing trust in a more efficient, more decentralized way that doesn't have, that has all the benefits of the past model and we'll in incorporate the past model. It's not removing it, just incorporating that and removing the problems of uh, concentration of power. Or... And that, so then, and then, you know, there are groups. I mean, obviously, Zappa would be one of them, an access point to a certain network in the most secure possible way. Um, and that's really what a regulated sort of bank and the infrastructure on that can give people. But then, you know, there's a lack of trust. In, in, in the world, there's a lack of trust. Why, why do you think that all banks aren't moving in that direction or larger parts of society are moving in that direction. Where, where's the lack of trust today? It's a difficult that's, one. That's it, yeah. It's a, it's a good question. I think it's like, you know, how you build trust. Uh, I think one, one key element, and it's an element that was present in the Internet of Information, is neutrality. It's like the, that the platform you use to interact with others is neutral. And, and that's what, blockchains and, and the internet of value, as I call it, that is this network of networks for the, for the management of value, uh, brings. Because when you have, once you have an open network with certain rules and it's, uh, you know, it has game theory that enforces agreements, not like a, a third party that enforces agreements, you are removing a lot of the subjectivity in those interactions. So, so you what you have is a neutral environment to engage with others. And, and that yeah. is what, what, what we are doing. People say, okay, blockchains are about transparency. Not necessarily. It's like, of course, there, 
you know, you can have a, like a, a neutral, transparent, uh, you know, and secure blockchain that would be an ideal scenario, but not necessarily ideal for all the use cases. Maybe you can have this, the equivalent of a, an intranet of value where, yeah. where you want like transparency and reliability, but within the, the, the limits of an organization. Or you can have an extranet where basically of value where you are creating the same level of transparency among many organizations, but you want to be opaque to the world. You only want to be transparent within the walls. Yeah of trust. So, so I think what we'll see is like different applications of this technology in different contexts. But, but I think the, the main element is neutrality, much like the Internet of Information brought neutrality in terms of access to knowledge, in terms of access to, to opinion. No, it, it gave a voice to societies. And the same will happen with the financial system. It's like, it's not that we are removing all the intermediaries or all the organizations that are accumulating trust and and um, and value, but they will need to serve a purpose. What's the biggest fundamental difference for you between Institution X that itself creates its own network and the Bitcoin protocol, which isn't subject to control by anyone? Well, openness and neutrality exactly. would be the... the, the and that's the, fundamental, the, right? That's I mean, a fundamental that's... change. It's like uh, you are not relying... This is an important concept. It's like, I realize back in the 90, late 90s, uh, you know, my problem with power accumulation is not, it's like, it's when you have power, even if you are a good person, even if you have amazing values, you are still, you know, exposed to the extortion of, of other powers that will want to, to force you to go, to use that power in a certain way. So it's like, it's, it's not even a, like an ethical dilemma for the individual, it's a problem of, of how it's a structure. It's like when you accumulate enough power, even if you are a very ethical person, you will be exposed to certain. And maybe you mm. can say, okay, no, because I'm, you know, yeah. I'm a person of value, so I'm not. I'm not going to give in, even if my personal security is at, at stake. But then, what happens if your family secure, physical security is at stake? So eventually, the only solution is like I always say, the best way. <laughs> you know, not to be extorted is not to have the power in the first place. So, so the only yeah. way we can really sort these problems we have is like by fragmenting power and making power uh, concentration liquid. So it's like, you know, in the political realm, we all delegate our political power to, to individuals, that, to, the, to the government that then administers that power from us. It's not about not doing that because we need that delegation of power, those proxies to manage power. But the thing is, like, if they don't fulfill their duties, we, can, we need to have a way to easily redistribute that power into something else. It's trust, right? It's I mean, trust, you're, 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 yeah. you're, It's trust yeah. from that institution X to... Moving it to another institution that will really yeah. fulfill the, their duties, so... Yeah. What are the next steps? What, what are the other things? Why, why did the mm -hmm. RSK... Um, where did that come from? That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, you know, as I told you, when I... When I when I started with Bitcoin, I had the intuition it could become like a, this open financial system for humanity. As I started understanding Bitcoin deeper, I realized that uh, it was going to be always volatile or for many, many decades, uh, pretty volatile. Therefore, it was not an option as an asset for people who live day by day, week by week, month by month. Uh, also, I realized Bitcoin, there's a trilemma 
in, in blockchains. No? It's like people who wants to scale blockchains, they need to sacrifice security and functionality. Or if you want to have more functionality, you have to sacrifice security and very likely scalability. So you always have this tension between security, scalability, and functionality. And Bitcoin was designed to maximize security over the other two. So also Bitcoin alone was not enough to create a financial system that could serve billions of users. So with those two concepts is that, well, and, and disconnected to my personal purpose, at the end of 2013, I decided I wanted to devote myself to see how we could put Bitcoin to the service of society and create this inclusive financial system. I say it's not a system for the unbanked. It's a system that is inclusive by design, that will serve any human being, regardless of their economic condition. No, it's like, it's mm -hmm. not designing a system only for, for those excluded. But then I started this search. I, I had these realizations about Bitcoin as an asset, Bitcoin as a platform. We started doing some experiments in the slums of Buenos Aires, some experiences like inviting them to the Bitcoin meetups in, in 2014 and, and seeing how they were interacting with Bitcoin. And, and honestly, we were learning from them and they were learning from us. So it was an amazing experience. And from that, I came with the idea that we needed to extend Bitcoin to become, you know, to really extend Bitcoin. Uh, conceptually, uh, we needed what now has the name of stable assets. Uh, but I didn't want to do that in a way that, that also was relying on third parties because then we were in the same problem. So I wanted a truly decentralized monetary system, like a peer-to-peer -peer monetary system. On top of that peer-to-peer -peer, um, monetary system to build a financial uh, decentralized financial system. And then, of course, the final thing to have also a decentralized internet because the internet became very centralized lately. You know? so, so in order to do that, I started talking, when I had a conversation with Nick Sau at the end of 2014 in October in Palo Alto, and we were discussing Ethereum because the idea of Ethereum was there, not the implementation, but the idea was there. And for us, in a way, in that discussion arise the, the thing that <clears throat> bootstrapping a new network, decentralized network, and giving liquidity and acceptance to a new asset was going to take too long. So from that discussion, the idea that actually the ideal model would be to, to scale, to extend Bitcoin. And then that's when we reach out to Sergio Lerner. Sergio was uh, the first to create a Turing Complete or general purpose a cryptocurrency in, in May 2013 called Quixcoin. Um, <clears throat> and that's when the idea of extending Bitcoin uh, of Rootstock, that was the second layer uh, sidechain to Bitcoin with a smart contract capability, is a start. No? Indeed, we were so focused on only those challenges because the challenges of Rootstock themselves were huge. It's like, because we decided to go after the model proposed by Blockstream of implementing a sidechain. So nobody mm. had mm. achieved that before. So, so we had, but on top of that... Just explain super basically what a, what a sidechain is. <clears throat> so a sidechain is, is a second layer to Bitcoin or it's a, it's a separate network, blockchain network ideally, but it can be something else, but it's a second that shares the, the same native asset. So, so a sidechain has Bitcoin as the native asset. So the, the, the fees of the network are paid in Bitcoin. 
And why that's important is because everything in decentralized blockchains and networks, is specifically in blockchains, is based on game theory. So all the systems are, by definition, adversarial. So if you have a secondary network that is like sharing resources with Bitcoin but has a different currency, and that secondary network becomes very successful, that secondary network can become a threat for, for Bitcoin. No? Unless the native asset is the same. As Rustock grows, it makes Bitcoin stronger. That was part of the early design decisions we made. No? Lots of people have talked to talk all the time about the internet being sort of you know, the language of the internet, mm -hmm. TCP, IP, or whatever it is, um, being the core sort of you know, language of that technology. Mm -hmm. The, the blockchain you're talking about, you've mentioned Blockstream, obviously mm -hmm. RSK. There are lots of other protocols doing all sorts of things with different forms of functionality. Where, where do you see all that going? Will we be will, be, will there be one to rule them all? Is it going to be the language of the blockchain in 2050? Or, or where do you see all of that going? Difficult to tell <laughs> because it's like, uh, but what I do know is that usually these innovation cycles uh, have their own cycles of expansion and synthesis. That's how it works. So, so I think we are at the end of a expansion cycles. Like, um, and in that sense, like Ethereum brought a lot of diversity to the ecosystem because suddenly you had a Turing complete or a general purpose programming language, which I said also had the trade-off of having less security. You know, so so it, it was. But but in a, enable an environment during completeness that is like that you can program anything you want. That's basically a very simple way of of explaining it. Enables people to to experiment. So so that's why we had this Cambrian explosion of protocols in in Ethereum, for example. Uh, but in the end, once you found a protocol that work, serves its purpose very well, you don't need to have ten protocols of, of the same thing. It's like if you, for example, for lending, once we have the best protocol for lending that covers all the possibilities of lending, and it's not that difficult to cover all the possibilities of lending, then you don't need 10 protocols. You will find, you will have one lending protocol. And actually from a security perspective, that's, that's what you want. Will, will they become more interoperable? Absolutely. That's, that's I, I think, the... the the next challenge and interoperability can be done in multiple levels because you have blockchain to blockchain interoperability. That's what we did with Rootstock because we, with Rootstock we created the exactly. first uh, bridge, uh, fully operational bridge between two blockchains. Uh, it has been running for four years with zero downtime, zero hacks. Uh, it holds, holds almost 4,000 Bitcoins in value. So, you know, it can be done. It's tough, it's very difficult, but it can be done. And we haven't reached a level of interoperability where the trust minimization is at the maximum, but mostly because the protocols still don't talk to each other very well. It's like uh, when you do interoperability on-chain, on the blockchain level, you need one blockchain to understand the transaction on the other blockchain. And then, for example, in the case of Rootstock, Rootstock under understands transactions on the Bitcoin side. That's how new Bitcoins are minted every time somebody logs uh, a Bitcoin on, on the rootstock address on Bitcoin, a new Bitcoin is minted on rootstock. But when you go back, Bitcoin still doesn't, doesn't understand a transaction on rootstock. But that will come. It's like Bitcoin is, is, is tougher to change, but, but I think eventually we'll have that interoperability level. When that happens, 
what we will have is actually TCP IP. Like we will have like, you know, that interoperability between networks. Yeah. I, I want to sort of bring it back to, let's call it Earth. Um, in talking about everything that you're talking about or what's inspired you and the whole journey that you've been on, um, I mean, back to the home territory, back to Argentina, um, were there things specifically, I mean, Argentina today, there's very high inflation rates. You know, has it tracked all of the economies in the region? And, and we have capital controls again. Capital so. <laughs> controls. Um, I mean, it's a large economy, largely, I think, commodity uh, exports, et cetera. Um, did, did sort of where you sit in that in that um, ecosystem or, or, or that jurisdiction, has that driven certain things about the way that you work or see things or specific opportunities for that particular market? I mean, I, I think... Yeah, Argentina is, is a very particular country because as we had all the economic crisis you can imagine is, and, and we had all the bad government decisions on the economic side, people is hedged against, you know, government decision at all times. It's not like in other economies, like people might hedge when there's a crisis. In Argentina, people is hedged by default. It's like, indeed, it's like... Uh, you know, everybody saves value, the ones who can save value, uh, you know, store value in dollars. And people operate in pesos, but actually nobody stores value in pesos. So you have a society that by default is always, you know, trying to anticipate. And that's very tough because most of the traditional, uh, yeah, economic, um, yeah, doctrine is like about like making decisions in a way that is swift enough so population cannot adapt to it. But in Argentina, it's almost impossible. I mean, that, that's why who suffers the, the most in in Argentina is the people who with less resources because they are the ones who cannot store value and and anticipate or or adapt to. But everybody else is already hedged. Everybody else, so that that creates a mindset that is very, you know. Um, friendly for for these technologies because, but they see it as a one more hedge because everybody is hedging on the U.S. dollar. Indeed, the, I, I would say the more successful uh, use case of crypto in Argentina now is using tether. It's like a, even even the they call it cuevas, like the black market exchanges brokers. They are using tether to instead of physical dollars, uh, the traditional physical dollars it's or still wires. It's a big, big cash economy as well, right? There's a still lot of a, big, a big cash economy for the same reason, because nobody trusts. It's like, uh, well, you have other things. You have a, very, a lot of recessive taxing, taxes. So you have, for example, a tax to, to banking transfers. So every time you bank transfer, you have to pay a tax. Like crazy things like that that no, could be unimaginable any, anywhere else. Oh, we have hundred and something taxes, I don't know. <laughs> so, so, so it's like the whole thing is a mess. So I think that's a, because crises are the enablers of change. No, crises are what enables. That was a little bit, you know, in 2013, I, I also started like helping create the Bitcoin communities in Latin America with two partners, with Franco Mati and Rodolfo Andrañez. And, and uh, that was another big driver for me. I, I saw in Latin America, and I think that applies to all emerging markets, the opportunity to, to leapfrog the region into new financial infrastructure that was based on, on decentralized networks. No? And, 
And I think because of this, because it's constant turmoil, and that erodes the the wealth of people. No, it's like the, being an entrepreneur in Argentina is is crazy. It's like I always say, if you are an entrepreneur in Argentina, then you can. It's like doing jungle training for a for <laughs> for a soldier. It's like a, well, that's jungle training for an entrepreneur. They drop you anywhere else, and you'll be I, fine. I mean, but it it, it does <laughs> sound. I mean, you've got uh, like I say, high volumes of cash, a lot lots of cash related transactions. Um, some instability or concern. It seems like I mean a very mm -hmm. natural fit. How, how do you think that BTC as a as a unit value takes that opportunity, or is already happening? Do people use it more as a reference point that isn't subject to the control of anyone or anything? BTC is a store of value, but for the longer term. It's like uh, so those who are storing value for maybe two or three years, and that was also part of why I realized we need to have what now has the name of stable coins or stable assets. Uh, because the people who can store value for two, three years or more is maybe 20% of the population. But if we want to serve everybody, we need to have uh, you know, also stable assets that, that in the short term, they will depreciate. They will be more stable. No, it's like you know they will lose purchasing power because that's the, always the tension. It's like stability versus purchasing power. No, stable assets are addressing the need to have low volatility in the short term or stability in the short term. Although you know in the midterm and long term they will lose a lot of purchasing power. Bitcoin is designed to as as a scarce asset is designed to preserve purchasing power. So it serves different needs. It's like mm. mid to long-term needs or short-term needs. And, and that's the thing. It's like, but 80% of the population is actually living in the short-term horizon. No? So, and, and in a way with Rootstock, what we are trying to do, Rootstock and everything we do at IOE Labs, what we are trying to do is connect both worlds. It's like, we, we yeah, think they are not at yeah. odds. It's like, all the value that is being preserved in Bitcoin for the mid to long term can be used as collateral and, and as the foundations to create a financial system that can serve any human being. And, and that's the beauty of it because blockchains are, if you want, uh, public infrastructure. So what you are doing by that is like, you know, using the value of the wealthier part of the population to support infrastructure that can serve any human being. So, so it's a way of subsidizing the public infrastructure that the whole society will need. And you see the liquidity of the wealthier part also to enable the economic growth and development of the... And then, but if you, and listening to that word, I mean, economic growth, um, would you say, or, or how would you react to the question of, I don't know, the biggest challenge um, is going back to your example at the <laughs> beginning of you know, the slums of Argentina, et cetera, access for those people to that technology. Is is the access point the, the challenge or the biggest challenge? Uh, I mean, some of it's quite technical. I mean, integration with certain things is is reasonably technical. It's not there for a massive open market, really. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And, and that was part, I mean, part of the original thesis back in 2014 was that by 2020, which already happened, half of the population of the world unbanked population would have a smartphone in their hands. So, so we were counting on the, yeah, the, the, the smartphone penetration mm -hmm. reaching, reaching critical mass. That already happened. I think we are beyond. Yeah. If you go to the slums, everybody has a smartphone. It's like, 
everybody, I would say, under 40 has a smartphone for sure. And that's the, the main challenge I think remains, that remains for the next decade is like how we translate and package these solutions into tools um, that anybody can use. And that's what at IOB Labs we call the everyday DeFi concept. It's like, mm -hmm. because it's not only, it's like removing com financial complexity, uh, also like, like it's tailoring these protocols to the, to the risk that regular people can use and to the complexity that regular people, I mean, regular in the sense of non-highly non technical and non-highly financial. It's like, you know, they might be amazing in other dimensions, but they, they are not, you know, advanced in, in those areas. So I think that's the main challenge of our industry. It's like, and also moving from pure speculation into, because to be honest, it's like, until now, speculation was driving the growth and yeah. now we need... Uh, utility to drive the growth. It's like why the Internet of Information became so successful because suddenly everybody could open a Hotmail account and communicate with their family and friends freely. No, that that was the so. Its utility will drive, you know, the the good for society and and the mass adoption. So so we need to create those tools, those uh, applications that really help anybody thrive and have a better life, and then crypto will reach mass adoption. I, I think that, um, I mean, listening to you speak, you know, the need or demand for a, whatever you want to call it, peer-to-peer -peer digital economy in certain parts of the world, in Latin America, whatever. I mean, it makes so much uh, sense. There are people driving this the right way, and I would mm -hmm. definitely put you in, in that bucket of people. There are lots of people driving this the wrong way. So how, how, do, how do people sort of make a distinction between someone who makes up a story of being some, you know, DeFi-related lending platform or new elite sort of protocol system or do some crazy fundraising exercise. <laughs> There's lots of bad stuff that's happened in the market as well. How do you distinguish between one and the other? Is it the people? It comes back to this question of trust, but is it trusted the people for an, an average guy is not going to perform a, uh, you know, a security audit on a protocol? No, it, it's tough. I think it's like, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's through turmoil and crisis that you get the market clean of bad actors is not, there's no easy answer to that. Um, also, you know, people talk a lot about greed, no? That people, okay, why you take, I don't know, 20% per year yield when, when you know that that's not, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't exist anywhere else, no? Like what happened with the Terra Luna case, no? It's like, yeah. why people was jumping into, well, because, you know, you have to understand people have, tough lives many times, and they are trying to get a way out. So, so it's not just plain greed. It's like many times everybody wants to have a better life. So it's, uh, but there are no shortcuts in that sense. It's like, you know, value creation has its rules. And, and I think that's what we are doing, is that we are creating tools that will preserve the value that people create, the wealth that people create. Uh, in, and that that's why neutrality and transparency and this open sourceness, you know, like all those elements are ways or decentralization are tools to protect that, you no, know, is to avoid, you know, a government from having the opportunity to seize all your assets, your life works. That happened in Argentina in 2001. It's like the, we have the first bail-ins. I'm not sure if in the world, but I think very, and, and everybody got all their assets in the bank account, in the banks, uh, says and, and locked for a year or, or over a year. And when they had access to their assets again, they were worth one fourth of, of their value. 
And, and some people had like their life savings there. It was not like, you know, some elderly people had their life savings. So some of them, yeah, ended up very bad. So, so that's uh, going back to the trust thing we were discussing. That is a thing that would never happen if we had, you know, the internet of value in place, Bitcoin and, and you know, robust resilient protocols in, in place that cannot be done again. And that is, I think it's a motivation for many of the founders in original founders of Rootstock. It's like a yeah. yeah, and the founders of Zappa. I mean if you think about that exact scenario, um, you know, a, a private bank with a USD denominated mm-hmm. interest bearing account, which is secured in a foreign jurisdiction mm-hmm. with access to BTC in a secure yielding way, not to go on a sales pitch, but <laughs> that's uh, become super relevant, right? In but that's everyday like DeFi. It's like DeFi is all these decentralized financial products, like put it, yeah, in, in terms that anybody can use day on their daily life that are shaped in a way that is safe for people. And I think that's that's exactly where we need to go. It's like, again, utility, like, uh, and I think third parties will have a, a role in this. It's not, again, I think... The trust accumulated in third parties will be used. It's part of the, indeed, for me, the, the more important emerging pattern of this new innovation cycle is reputation-based identity. It's the ability to, to gather all the reputational traces of an individual and give them control of that. It's like the same, if you think on all the sharing economies, they are wall gardens of reputation because it's like, what Airbnb, Uber, eBay, Amazon do is like they gather reputational information, but they keep it in a wall garden and they create their huge business around this. And they don't give this information back to the true owner of that information that is the individual interacting. And, and with these technologies, we have the ability to give back all that information and reputation, informa- reputational traces to the people who actually build the interactions and build their network effects. So, so I think that will be also a big driver, yeah, for for change. So, do you think do you think that it's fair? I mean, lots of large institutions are doing loads of interesting things, and they have done for you know, the whole of history. Um, do you think put the bracket of sort of I'm going to call it fintech, super generally, or technology, mm-hmm. is is that is that the voice piece of that small voice? Is is that the way or the only way to give access to those I kinds think it's of facilities? The, and it's the beginning, no? I think, you know, money is the blood of our society. So, so it's like if we create fairness in the in the financial world and fairness through competition, through like you mentioned, fintechs is like for me even fintechs have not been able to compete fairly with the traditional with incumbents in the financial system because yeah. they were operating on rails that were controlled by the same people they wanted to disrupt. No, it's like, so that's why many of the more innovative fintechs ended up being acquired, and I, and I would say at a low cost, <laughs> by the incumbents. And that's what we are changing as well. We are creating neutral rails for finance that where fintechs really have an opportunity to challenge the status quo. So, so if you ask me what we are building is also the long tail of, of fintech. It's, like, it's creating an environment where fintechs can really challenge and innovate and, and the, the status quo, and, and that will create necessary, will create prosperity for society. Because again, <laughs> it's like we, we are, competition is it's a very great tool. To I, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, 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 
I think you're absolutely right. But um, how far away do you think we are from from being able to act, actually access everything that we're talking about? How I mean, conceptually, a lot of stuff has happened. There's been loads of developments over the last ten years. I think of we course. are two to three years before we can package all these. Uh, as an industry, we are in the process of packaging these to a to a point where I think we will see a, a moment very soon where you will be able to go from idea to product like the production ready fintech solution in a quarter. And what about on the side of the user, the average guy? Is that a question of education, of learning? I mean, how do people know that this exists? How did you explain to them back in that time what the hell this was? I mean, that's uh... at the end. I think is utility will what drives adoption. It's like a, it's like it was hotmail. It was not the explain. We could explain the web for for ages and not get meaningful results. Once you have a utility, that's it. So it's like when we get to a point where people can download a wallet and, and suddenly have access to all the financial services they, they need uh, in, in a sovereign way where they know they are protected in a global way where they know they can inter- interact with anybody in the world instantly, like we do with video conferencing today, which was unthinkable 25 years ago. So, so once we have the same experience we have for communications, access to information, for finance... That's it. There's no nothing to explain. It's like that's what we need. It's like to provide tools where people can, you know, have a better life uh, by using those tools in a simple to use way. So and, and let me let me to changing people's lives again, just because it's an interesting point. But you know, where the application use of the technology, so beyond BTC onto RSK, whatever it might be, um, you've just mentioned uh, self identity mm-hmm. systems. Mm-hmm. You won land registry. I've heard you talk about before. Mm-hmm. Loads and loads and loads of theoretical. Where, where is the application of the technology that will make uh, the biggest difference? Um, or, or is it simpler than that? Is it is it going to be simple access to, you know, units of value? I think it it depends on where you are. No, I think that's why I think emerging markets are so important because that's where the technology can. If you think in the first world that the, the value that these technologies can bring is is incremental, it's like because the banking system, you can argue it pretty much works and pretty much everybody has access to it, or, or most people has access to it. But when you go to emerging markets, the financial system doesn't work. Uh, half of the population, at least, is unbanked or underbanked. So, so that's where the first place where these technologies uh, can provide exponential value. They can change lives in a meaningful way. Nonetheless, I think in the future we'll be looking to other things that are very important that we are not, we are giving for granted, like privacy. And uh, it's like we are in a society, I think we we have given away our privacy and the privacy should be uh, like an essential right for any human being. Because people say, well, if you don't have anything to hide, uh, why you want privacy? You no, know? it's like, and it's not how it works because you're assuming that the tools we are we are creating today may be in the hands of uh, well-intended gover- governments and are remain in the hands of good people. But what happens if those same tools that today are in the hands of good people fall into you know into a dictatorship in the future? 
beautifully, we only understand. Right, I think it's the biggest gap as well. You, if all the things we've talked about, mm -hmm. you mentioned video conferencing, we've talked about the evolution of the internet yeah. generally, I mean, music-based systems, mm -hmm. all sorts of industries have evolved with use of different technologies. Mm -hmm. um, and payment systems are pretty, I mean, it's one of the most legacy infrastructures that still 100%. exists. Probably one of the biggest gaps that exists. And um, for me, personally, I think the, the interplay between that financial system and the new developing system is is pretty fundamental. And that's why I, I mean, we, yeah. at Zappa, that's pretty interesting where we sit. So, Yes, because uh, you also need to preserve the the rules of society or, or the controls that society has to, I mean, compliance, you have a lot of the compliance, you know, although you can argue that some of the compliance has been weaponized and is used as a tool for, to control or to do geopolitical games. <laughs> but, but regardless of that, compliance has a true merit in, in being a tool to protect society. So, so you want to, I think crypto is the only and and you know is is the only tool that has the right balance between being privacy protecting and being able to be compliant and and to protect the rules of society as as we know it. So so in a way that's very that's very important. That's why crypto is so important for society in general. It's like it's the only way where you can have both. I love the story that you told once. I've heard you tell it about one character right at the beginning of your time. And you'll know his name better than I do. Um, I'd love to hear that story. In, in, in all of this journey, now you can talk so technically about so many different things, how much of an impact that initial story had on you um, and the process or thought process that you've been through. Hannibal was the leader in a community we were doing social work. And um, he was a mason. Uh, he was, for example, creating different building uh, techniques to accelerate and improve Uh, he was amazing. Like he was like creating this modular building system by himself. He had like not even primary education, but he was building all these modular things so people could bring up their houses like in a in a better way, more sturdy, more resilient. Because in the slums, many times they have like these tin walls, and uh, and so he was doing all those things. He was helping at the same time. He was working, of course, to support his family. He, he was the reason why, because he, I mean, he was not the only person I saw like, yeah, um, being treated unfair <laughs> by society in a way or not. Uh, but uh, but uh, he was the epitome of, of that. It's like, he was like, because he had all the qualities I admire in a human being. It's like, you know, um, hard workness, like uh, perseverance, uh, Kindness, uh, yeah. He really was was a, like, a, yeah, a human being. I think all of us would love to be, <laughs> in 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 sense of how kind he was with with his surroundings, how um, generous he was, and um, the fact that he could never thrive. It's like, uh, yeah, something that, that that in a way shape why I, I do what I do. I think the level of solidarity I saw in those areas where people have almost nothing. It's like, you know, they barely have homes. Uh, they, live, they live day by day. It's like, but they share everything they have. So you, you, when you see that level of solidarity and kindness and, you know, 
it's like, and, and even gratitude, no? It's like the happiness they had. Every, I was going for many years until I was 15. I was going every weekend and doing meditation with them, which you might think, okay, why meditation in an environment where the material needs are so, yeah, so big. Uh, and, uh, but for them it was very good because it, it was a moment to, to, have, to be able to have peace in an environment that is also very violent. It's like, I've been in, <laughs> in yeah. crossfire because it's like yeah. sometimes they were shooting from one block to the other in the slums and I, I've been right around like <laughs> witnessing things like that. So yeah, so so it was a, an amazing, like for me, it was a forming experience. It's like a, that there are things that in human nature that transcend the economical aspects. Uh, so it's like, those are the values we want to preserve, no? And we want to give the tools for any human being that has the right values, the opportunity to thrive and, and develop. No? That's amazing that 30 years later, you still remember that story and that he had that impact on you from the way that he approached things in that way. That's awesome. We, we've got to close things out. And I've heard you say before that uh, you think that, I don't know, the social fabric of Argentina or Latin America is, is going to change or it will be different in... In 2030, do you think that's already happening, or what do we need to do to help get there, or what are the pieces that you're playing in making that happen? I think it's like, yeah, what because you are mentioning something that for me is very, is yeah, is deep into my heart. It's like every time you travel through Latin America, you see. I mean, there's a lot of Hannibal's everywhere. It's like. You can see the kindness, the generosity, um, yeah, the loving nature of people in Latin America. Is when you walk through Latin America, it's like you you have been there, so yeah. so you know it's it's like so amazing. It's like I, I'm astonished every time I go to a new country in Latin America, and um, they only need the tools to to prosper, no, and that and and I think those tools are not coming from the top down. It's like what we I think how we can change the fabric is like by basically enabling these tools to reach people and and I think that will be a work with governments, but more with local governments than with national governments. I think the change is not going to come from the top down. I think the the nation nation state in a way is failing uh people. But the city-states, the, the local governments, they are in touch with people and, and they still are very aware and willing to, to help people. So I think we can do a lot of things creating a fabric on the lower level, close to regional development, economic development to the city level. And, uh, and I think that's how I think we can reshape Latin America to truly create the breaches between the local economies um, to create like a, an integrated region and uh and it needs thought leaders it needs mavericks uh, <laughs> like you driving those conversations i think you're doing an amazing thing and i'm super happy to be a very small part of that um, amazing to hear thank you so much uh and and you're right we we can all do our contributions exactly. to this change thank you for having me. thanks for watching mavericks brought to you by zappa bank please like and subscribe for more episodes